0: Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stottmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. rivers run through my guest Becca Lawton's veins. For years she was a river guide on some of the American West's mightiest rivers. She even took Ed Abbey down one of them. She's also a fluvial geologist and can read rivers through dinosaur bones in their canyons and the sediments of their beds. Now, knowing what she knows, She writes fiction, poetry, and prose about human relationships with water. As a Fulbright scholar, she's also researched why our human brains don't see dangers we're creating. We talk about rivers and water, the shock of returning to civilization, and how she feels we need both science and stories to grok the primary power of water in our lives. Let's let's talk about your, your scientific background. You're a fluvial geologist and that is the coolest sounding uh, <laughs> job description. Isn't there anything fluvial? So tell tell us what a fluvial geologist does and how you how you got into that.
1: Okay. Well I got into fluvial geology mm. because really because I was a river guide and all these questions started Coming to me about how the the water worked, how what the water did with pieces of sediment like me. You know, I was a person in a raft, and anything moved by water is considered a piece of sediment. So when I was back in college, which I was attending, you know, around my river seasons, uh, that's what that's what drew me. I got very interested in looking at the fossil record the rock record for what rivers did in it you know ancient rivers and and because i was also working out in utah at the time as a river guide i was in proximity to a lot of very exposed geological sort of questions Mm -hmm. and 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 it was the dinosaur quarry at dinosaur national monument that got me started in fluvial geology, looking at dinosaur bones in Jurassic rocks. Whoa. So what did you see there? <laughs> what did you see? Well, you know, I had always really wondered why all those bones were in one place at the dinosaur quarry. I didn't kind of buy that it was a, a dinosaur graveyard, sort of like in the Tarzan movies where the where the elephants went to die, you know, the elephant graveyards. that. I just didn't it just didn't look that way to me it looked like they were all sort of lying there because they'd come to rest together maybe maybe moved by something so you know other people had been working on the problem and I just happened to team up with a scientist Kay Berensmeyer, who then worked for the Smithsonian after I worked with her at UC Santa Cruz and I went out to Utah with the tools she gave me to look at those rocks and those bones and wrote a kind of an early paper on how the process of um, the bones moving after the dinosaurs had died and moving and then getting stuck on this big river sandbar um, that's what I found at the dinosaur quarry that hmm. that it really was these old you know process where these old rivers these Jurassic And Cretaceous era rivers uh, moved these bones into position and then and then the river continuing to move sand down buried them. Huh,
0: so it was the river that moved them together. It wasn't like the dinosaurs were a cult or something and they all committed (laughs) suicide. They all drank the Kool-Aid and so there they were, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was the river (laughs) at work and and because I knew the rivers processes so intimately, in fact, some of the great ge- geologists that I heard lecture about how rivers work said, you know, if you want to know how rivers work, ask a kayaker. And yeah. I, I was doing quite a bit of kayaking at the time, too, and I was just thinking of it all sort of holistically. Sort of the rocks that are around these rivers where I work now and I bring people down and show them these places, they, you know, they're these are the modern analogs for these ancient rivers that formed some of these rocks so it just was all very flowing together and and then as I was working as a geologist I started to think of these stories that then I published together in my Steely's collection so then I started making up stories about them because because I started to think I'm seeing all this stuff but the language of science for me isn't necessarily the end all for getting the concepts out into the world.
0: I did read any number of your essays, and um, but
1: you also do fiction and poetry, right? That's right. Yeah. In fact, I started with the poetry, mm-hmm. and and uh, that was when I got my first Pushcart Prize nomination for one of the first poems I ever had published I got the sort of message that oh this might be not as hard as I thought but that was an early sort of impression and hasn't stuck with me. Find <laughs> <laughs> it very challenging.
0: Yeah it's like me playing cards, you know, hey no problem. Because <laughs> I only yeah, do it like one sort of blue moon so beginner's luck always applies. Exactly. So. Is there a particular format that you prefer? or not?
1: It, you know, in terms of genre, you mean... Yeah. Uh, uh, well, it seems to shift around for me. Mm-hmm. For instance, right now I'm back to writing short stories, mm-hmm. and sometimes they come to me fully formed, or through a dream or something, and then I just have to really fast to get them down. Of course, they need a lot of editing after that, but but so so it, it does shift around because sometimes all I can write is poetry and maybe nothing publishable, you know, that's worth publishing will come out of weeks and weeks of work. But, but it's, it's what I'm driven to do during that period of time. So, but, but so my favorite formats are, are essays. I love writing essays, sort of layered essays, like the ones in reading water
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: and, and then short story form is, is, to me, sort of like I hear golf is for other people. You know, it keeps me a tortured person. <laughs> and, then, and then poetry sometimes uh, as well. When I'm working on a novel, that's all I can do. It takes yeah, up imagine. so much space. Yeah. But I don't think it's my favorite uh, way to write. It's just sometimes a story needs that much length and space and that sort of thing. So,
0: when you, when you think of the science and then the the gut feeling or the heart feeling that you have for water, are they are they
1: very compatible? Hmm. You know, I think that's a question still to be answered. I I find that if I'm deep in science mode, I I'm being creative in a different way than when I'm writing a story. I, mm-hmm. I'm I'm designing a study to answer a question. Like um, maybe the question is, in a storm, how much sediment can this stream move? How much is the sediment load, as we call it? And so I'll be thinking of well, I've got to put if I'm going to answer that question, then I've got to look at three different stations over X number of years, and I'm going to have to hire the guy down in Berkeley who knows how to do this, and, you know, it's 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 project management in a really creative way that's really fun, you know, I really enjoy mm-hmm. it, and I like designing studies and feel that I learned how to do that from some of the best and, and got fairly accomplished myself at it, but... And say I I guess there is one thing that does happen when I'm out there working on a problem monitoring a stream or something and that is I start to have dreams about what then become stories I'll start to be thinking I'm so immersed you know I'm so immersed in Mm. the watershed where I'm working say then then I'll start to think of well if or my subconscious will start working on the problem of how to tell a story about it. And that's not something I I think I set out to do purposefully, but just because I was working in these two separate realms, really fairly split, you know, science over here, and then over here I'm also writing stories. Then then in my subconscious more, it started to cross over and come out as dreams. Mm-hmm. and And then I would... Get up in the morning or, or wake up at night and write down sort of the, well, here's the main characters, and then go back to sleep or whatever, and then create a story from it when I'm in writing mode. But but I don't I don't think I'm fully integrated as a scientist slash science writer. I'm just able to sort of draw on both pool of expertise, I guess. Let's start with
0: how much experience you have as a river guide, which is really substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about some of the places. Didn't you row Ed Albe? D- uh, not Ed Albee, Ed Abbey <laughs> yeah. down down the river. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's a,
1: a medal right there. Yeah, that was just um, happenstance, really. So I started in California on the Stanislaus River, as I talk about in Reading Water, and and many of the people I knew as guides and still know did begin on the Stanislaus or in California where a lot of the training happened and then people, you know, dispersed throughout the West. And so I worked in California for just one season and then in Utah for on on the green, the Colorado and the Yompa for a couple of seasons. And then I worked in Idaho where Women were, you know, just starting to get licensed on some of the harder runs like the Selway and the Middle Fork of the Salmon River. And then, of course, there's the main Salmon. But then I got the chance to do some training in Grand Canyon on the Colorado down there. And once I got on those longer trips, that's just where I wanted to stay. They seemed more transformative to the people we were taking down. Mm -hmm. So I stayed 10 How long were they? They were two-week trips. Ah, okay. And and, uh, so I stayed there and worked in the canyon for 10 years. So all told, I had 14 seasons, which I thought I was just going to keep going. But I did run out of steam and Mm -hmm. needed at least a break. And then once I took the break, uh, didn't really go back to it again, except, mm-hmm. except for fun, you know, and pleasure, and family trips and stuff. There was a
0: section of reading water. Now, your brother was a river guide, too, right? Yeah, I
1: have an old And your sister? Exactly. I have an older brother <laughs> <laughs> who guided before me, and, and then my older sister, Jennifer, uh, got started just a little bit after me, and she... Guided mostly in Utah, and was was very accomplished on the run through Cataract Canyon, where is which is the run where I took Ed Abbey, and mm-hmm. and she she worked there in Cataract Canyon, which has some big big wild rapids uh, for many years. And
0: I love the the passage where you describe that. You say eventually we both guided in the Grand Canyon well into our thirties, long after our family and friends had given up hoping we'd live productive lives. <laughs> and I love this part. You say we were goners tuned to rivers and seasons. Summer brought its hot, full trips scheduled back to back. Fall became a time of poignant separations and endings. I mean, you were really operating on a natural scale there. Mm -hmm. You know, you weren't going to work in an office. Whatever the weather was, whatever the river was, that's what you
1: were dealing with. That's exactly right. And I have to say, it, it, it helps to be young enough to be open to it, I think, too. Mm-hmm. But I had the benefit of having been brought up by a family, you know, my mother was a naturalist and her father mm. was a Adirondack guide and very outdoorsy. And so we did a lot of camping. I was I just sort of craved being out there and my siblings as well. And that made it feel really natural to become a river guide and to become so attached to whatever the season was saying it was time for so. do you still
0: carry that over into your say do you carry it over into your writing life or into just day-to-day life
1: as well you know for years after i retired from river guiding i'd feel that same pull that same pull in the spring and it felt really weird to not give into it, especially when I was a young mother and I didn't really I Never really figured out how to balance those two things The the wanderlust with the need to make a home for a, a small person, you know mm-hmm. uh, But after years of not giving into it, it just became I don't know kind of suppressed maybe or just something that I experience more in one place. So I live in California, and we do have four seasons. You know, despite the fact that they're not as maybe intensely demarcated as they are, say, in Vermont, where you are, or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in other states. In other no, we
0: have five seasons. <laughs> oh yeah, we have mud season, which is my least favorite
1: season. It's disgusting. Mm. Well, one thing I have to say too is that as a fluvial geologist so i was i started with research as we do when we're in college and learning to be scientists but when i moved to northern california and worked in my own watershed then there's seasonal aspect to that too for instance if we're going to be monitoring a lot in the spring we have to be getting ready in the winter and and it's it's another kind of preparing for seasons and seasonal change and and then i got to uh, you know a point here with my monitoring schedule where i knew when the big storms were going to be i knew mm-hmm. i knew when we'd get the rain and you know usually i mean this has changed a lot in the last 5 years because our storms are more unpredictable now but right. for the 10 years i was doing it day in day out i could i could have told you no we're not going to see any rain in october even though the dry season's officially over and we we won't get our big stream rises till you know christmas and and so how did you know that how did uh, it was just a matter of doing it so much and and collecting the data and going yep I, I might as well just forget about making any holiday plans because <laughs> it's going to be raining and I'm going to be out there taking samples. So. Because I'm a fluvial <laughs> geologist. Yeah, and they get wet. So,
0: What are some of the things you learned as a river guide that you take with you into other areas of life?
1: Well, I did have to learn compassion for people coming from other uh, walks of life, I guess, who might be scared of water, for instance, or might be not physically capable of making a certain hike or something. I guess I learned patience with, uh, you know, for a person in their 20s to have to learn patience professionally is... For me, I mean that was a stretch. I'm not by nature very patient and so to to learn that these are people who are in, you know, they're trusting me for some reason, Mm -hmm. you know, they're in my care and I am responsible and so I learned to, I don't know, broaden my acceptance of, you know, differences in people. Did you ever come close to
0: just killing yourself? Um, did you have really close calls?
1: You know, not commercially, not when I was Mm -hmm. on the job, but there's, in Reading Water, there's that one story about flipping the boat on the rogue grip in high water. Well, that's the closest I've come to, you know, completely not mm, being safe.
0: You must have been really buff,
1: huh? I was buff for a while, for sure. Yeah. I was
0: buff before (laughs) buff was called buff. (laughs) it was so interesting that that one fellow who was a a Vietnam vet and then turned on to meditation and how a A group of you would meditate, like find a place by yourselves and meditate. That's, I don't know, there's something very beautiful about that image of uh, finding a place on a river and doing that.
1: Do you still meditate? I do. I do. I think that meeting uh, Phil after he had done his teacher training and learning that from him in, 76 or something was it's one of the best things I've ever done for myself is to learn that and and yeah I do it every day so you still do TM or... I do I do I guess yeah. I guess I've I guess I've joined it with breath meditation just simple awareness of breath my goal is to increase my awareness of myself I'd constantly learning what my reactions are and that breath I find helps me with that because I
0: I learned TM Uh um, and I do kind of a mix too because I find that TM really it kind of moves me quickly into the place I need to be in order to do the rest of it um, you know, to concentrate on the breath or something. And now I've started to do qigong, which um, mm. I'm finding really powerful for um, for what I'm doing it for. Yeah,
1: no, I, I the way you describe it, using Tim to get started, it it's a it is. It really works as a way to drop down in quickly, and, yeah. <laughs> and then you can uh, I don't know, not think about the mantra and move into these other things and, and to hear that you're doing also the movement, that's terrific. I, I find that helpful too. I, I do a Tai Chi mm-hmm. series of movements and there's a real sort of rush that I get from that. So.
0: Now you mentioned that you come from a lineage of outdoors people and i'm also wondering if you had any kind of formal religious
1: background yeah you mentioned you were going to ask me that and immediately i thought no not really you know we did as a family when i was young we we went to various churches and i don't remember very much of what happened back then it was it it was really about getting together with the other kids while the adults were in you know service when I moved to Sonoma to raise my daughter, I joined the congregational church here, which was mm-hmm. a wonderful experience, a wonderful experience of singing hymns and listening to the word and being in sanctuary, and I found that very peaceful, and I was a single mom. It helped me get through a difficult time uh, very much, So, and the connection to the community, so. I see the value in reading words that are considered spiritual and thinking about them with others. It, I would say that uh, it's not the extent of my spiritual experience, but it's the extent of my religious, I guess, experience.
0: And so when you talk about your spiritual experience, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that someone could spend as much time on rivers as you
1: did without having a lot of them. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it's to be in the presence of a, a wall that is, you know, thousands of feet high, that is in light and shadow and very hushed and just magnificent and to be there in silence. Maybe with the sound of the river. That to me is where I get my feelings of awe. And I don't think of a great creator necessarily, except I think of creation. And as a scientist, yeah. I, you know, I embrace the fact that there's there's these processes that are natural and I've seen them, so I know how they work. and I believe, my teachers who told me that this has really been going on for billions of years and so get used to the idea that there's there's time beyond our imagining
0: mm, the deep time
1: exactly um, but in terms of the the myths like you were writing about on your website I feel like you describe very well how if we accept them as myths and we understand their myths and we don't try to apply them to processes that we know more about now than, mm-hmm. than those who wrote those words knew. That doesn't make them dumber than us. It just means that our intelligence has um, led us to find more information over thousands of years. So, yeah,
0: you know, like I'm reading right now this biography of Augustine and I've, I've read several biographies of Augustine. This is by one of my favorite authors, Peter Brown, who's emeritus at Princeton. He's like, he's fabulous. And um, here's someone who obviously was very smart, but he had a lot of agendas, you know, he had a lot of agendas. And the thing is, is that at a great distance, you may not know what the agendas were political agendas, the, mm. um, the agendas to establish social order or to get rid of this cult that's challenging you or something, you don't have that uh, unless you've studied history as well. And so, you know, everything is inflected with that. And I, I think to myself, well, Okay, so this guy was intelligent, and he was dedicated and all that kind of stuff. I think he was a whack job, frankly. (laughs) And, um, you know, you wouldn't want to live next to the guy, you know, as a neighbor in an apartment or anything. But, and why is he still in play as developing people's
1: worldview? You know, it doesn't doesn't make sense to me, you know. Exactly. I, I agree it's like we have the Bible for instance and some people say well that's the book and it is it's 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 one book it's one book and it's I love the fact that there's this idea that you're sharing about th- these agendas these hidden agendas we can't know what they are from this distance right and-
0: which is life. There's no life mm-hmm. without it, really. And right. so, you know, and we all came from water and we all have so much water. We're what, like 60%, 60% water on a good day. And- <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And so, you know, you're in the West where water is such an issue too. I mean, it's mm-hmm. becoming an issue everywhere. Like we're, with climate change, we're expected to get more water heavier rain falls and you know the old farts will tell you you know i've never seen rain like this mm-hmm. um, with the incredible closeness that you have with the water scientifically and emotionally and spiritually what are some of your your takes on that
1: well i think that i think the thing i'm confronted with every day about water as a as californian you know i'm a native oregonian but i live in california now and I have always thought, well, since since I was since I started as a guide, and I saw my favorite or my first river dammed for no good reason. Mm. I mean, even looking back, I, I've read the literature on that dam recently, and it said, yeah, it hasn't lived up to you know what we promised it would because the rainfall regimes have changed so much. Mm. Um, over the years of its lifetime, and it was modeled on older rainfall patterns. So seeing that completely wasteful project that destroyed a beautiful place, and and what we need now is more beautiful places and less wasteful projects. Uh, so seeing that was the beginning of my sense that we live in a very wasteful culture. Yeah. And so water's not the only thing we waste. We, we waste electricity. We waste food. Opportunity. <laughs> we waste food. Yeah, we're, we're, we, we waste, we fly to Vegas for the weekend. You know, it's like we're not thinking ahead. And that's the way we are with water. We don't even think from season to season. So right. as long as we're not willing to admit uh, the drought, isn't over the drought's not over in California even though the conservation measures were lifted by the governor they should never be lifted anymore because Mm -hmm. because we haven't learned how to be good stewards of this resource that there's never going to be enough of out here Mm
0: -hmm. so
1: that's what I feel daily you know I I feel it every time I hear a hose running and or you know someone's watering some plant (laughs) by the side of the road that isn't really as valuable as the water they're using to water it. You know, right. I know that sounds like judgment, but, but it's like, this is something we need to drink. We're not going to be able to drink anything else. Right. So. Right. It's um, it's primary. It's primary. And, and so when I see people washing their cars and watering their lawns, I'm kind of thinking we haven't really gotten the message of the five year drought. I, I think you mentioned PTSD. Why don't people have PTSD about how scared they were a year ago, you know, when, they're, when the reservoirs were, were down to nothing? You know, yeah. why is that so quickly forgotten? I don't understand that. I don't so, understand
0: it either because I get very nervous during a drought. I, when I was a kid, we had a bad drought and we lost our water two summers in a row. Mm -hmm. and you luckily we had a pond that was fed by a spring and that had never been known to go dry although now with more building the water tables have shifted uh in that part of New Jersey but I freak out if we have a drought Mm -hmm. because it's just there's something very frightening about it and I and I'm I'm kind of dismayed to hear that people are just picking up like nothing ever happened
1: it's true and it's, it's very I have to zip my lip you know a good 90% of the time if 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 it comes up in conversation, I I've, was talking to my husband just this morning about when is it okay to speak up you know when when is it okay to when will we be heard and and mm-hmm. I think that that this is why I write about these issues as a Fulbright Scholar, I was studying why our brains can't take in this information. Why can't, why can't we learn from the articles we read about uh, what's needed for climate resilience? Why aren't we getting it? And and it's, it turns out that the human brain is is perfectly adapted. We evolved to not be able to accept the threat of climate change. How is that? Well, it's um, there's there's a number of factors. Uh, one is the fact that we perceive it as a slow moving uh, problem or a slow moving threat. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't feel as slow moving now as it did, say, five years ago. Right. But. But we are we are adapted to deal with r- what's right in front of us. You know, it's sort of like I've got to figure out how to pay my tax bill. I've got to, you know, get my car repaired. We're not able to think sort of beyond this, uh, the existential threats that are right there on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So it gets, we keep putting off, Our our brains allow us to put off dealing with it until the sort of net effect is that, well, we're not dealing with it. That's that's one of the things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's there's far more than that. For instance, one of the things we've also evolved to uh, manifest is that we're bystanders. For instance, uh, the DNA that has come down to us is that of the people who did not rush in. Ah. You know, to a dangerous situation. You know, that's the person who got killed by the saber-toothed tiger or the you know that's the person who didn't live to become our ancestor. Mm -hmm. so so we stand back and we look and we wait and so bystander effect is another reason we're not really dealing effectively with climate yet So that's just a couple of the reasons where, you know, we evolved to ignore. You know, it's interesting
0: that you talk about the, you know, bystanders. I was just talking with someone about that tsunami in Indonesia uh, a number of years back and how people were just standing there looking at this wave. It's like, hey, look at that wave. All the animals, Uh, all the other animals (laughs) had beat feet out of there, or however they got out, wings or whatever. They were out of there. The fisher people from very traditional cultures they could ride it out because they knew where to go in the ocean, but everyone else is just, "Oh look, I'll take a picture of this with my phone you know and and initially it looks like, oh, they're so cut off, but it sounds like from what you're
1: saying that maybe that's how we're that's how we're wired, yeah, we're wired to we're wired to do things that aren't always you know in our best interest for sure mm-hmm. but the but the reading yeah that I've been doing about. Why we've been able to ignore this for so long when the numbers have been there, uh, it's it's just been fascinating. and and really, the answer that I keep coming to is that because our our brains can't take in the problem in the way that we've been, you know, confronted with it so far is that story is really the way that a, allows our brains to hear it, to, you know, to grok it, you know, to, to say, I, oh, I get it. And so if we're wanting to change the world, this is, this is why I'm writing stories. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel a creative impulse anyway. I always wanted a creative life. Uh, But the reason I think I'm writing about these things that are so near and dear to my heart is because I want to see them passed on as much as possible to our kids. Mm. Are you aware of the Dark Mountain Project? I've heard of it. Can you remind me?
0: Yeah, it's these guys in England, Dougal Hine and and Paul Kingsnorth started it, these two Oxford dudes, Oxford writers. Mm. Basically feeling that I was at a workshop with Paul Kingsnorth about a month and a half ago, and he was saying the same thing. It's like facts aren't going to change. I mean, it's good to have the facts, Mm -hmm. you know, it's good to have that backup and to be able to refer to it. But then you have to take it somewhere else. You have to take it into the story in order to in order, as you say, for people to grok it. Um, and it's it's very interesting to hear that from multiple fronts, you know, uh, especially one where you know part of your gig is the facts of it, uh huh, and and yet you feel the story is the more powerful avenue. I do, and mm-hmm.
1: that's uh, and that's really I'm not I'm not doing science, I haven't for. A couple of years now because I've moved more fully into the storytelling part of it. I mean, I'm very glad to have had all those years of being that close to the problem, you know, to the to finding ways to answer questions like we were talking about earlier. However, it's the, my firm belief that the story is the answer that's brought me here to this talk today with you because we're both eco literati's So <laughs> is, that what, is that what we are? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, we
0: met through the eco lit I know. Yeah. Luckily. I know. Yes. What are some of those stories that you hope will okay. will influence people in that way?
1: Of my own. Yeah, sure. The ones I'm working with. Yep. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, so my first novel, Junction, Utah, is is a story. It turns out it's a story about a community its water sources are threatened. I didn't set out to write about it about that, but that's what came out. So that's that's been out for a few years. Uh, my second novel, which is the one I went to Canada to research, and that's that's about it's a, actually a murder mystery mm. with uh, eco water crime at its you know as the central conflict cool so yeah so that's looking for a publisher right now it's in the hands of my agent and i'm writing the prequel to that which takes place here in northern california and that is still i'm still trying to figure out what the central conflict is in that but it is about water and is based a lot on the the many years of monitoring I, I did here as a flu field geologist. And then I'm also writing, I had one of those dreams just earlier this week, uh, and, and, and I'm writing about baseball and and drought, that a short story. So those are the things I'm immediately working on. So no spitball or what? <laughs> I didn't even think of that. I, <laughs> I know get nothing that about there. baseball. <laughs> I know nothing about baseball. Yeah, no, it's it's. I'm I'm a. I listen a lot to baseball on the radio, and I love oh, the yeah. language. Yeah, the, yeah. It's, it's got its own vocabulary, so that's something I love also about geology is the language, the the vocabulary you get to learn when you're a scientist. It's it's fabulous. Like what? Oh, like, well, for instance, fluvial geologist, I mean, I I just love that more people who are my friends know what that is now, you know, and what Mm -hmm. those words mean and other vocabulary. Oh, well, mineral names are really cool, you
0: know. Yeah, I can think of a word that I, I had never seen this before until I read your stuff, and I don't know if this is the correct pronunciation thalweg oh yeah actually it would be now that i look at it it's you know it's probably talweg which is the the path of the valley in german yes that um, makes
1: sense yeah. yeah does that make sense so explain to us what
0: how, how do you pronounce it well
1: we always said thalweg in yeah you know geology class yeah i'm sure uh, and so explain what that is all right so it's the uh it's the deepest and most um, i don't want to say direct line but it's the deepest part of the river and it's where most of the current is flowing and so if you if you are in a boat and you want to get from point A to point B down the river you want to look for the thalweg because it will carry you it will carry you there and you will not be fighting say a backwater or a slow current or still pool or something, but you'll be in the flow. So the deepest part of the valley, you said, was the, the German. Uh, Tall, the
0: T-H-A-L is another way of, of, um, it's like Neanderthal, you know, from the Neander Valley. That's what that means. So, Uh um, and Weg just means way or path. Um, so, and, T-H-A-L is an, an alternate way of spelling valley. And it's just pronounced with a hard T. And I just noticed that. What you, de- what you described about this, and I'll read it. You, you There was a woman who was rowing, and you said uh, that you pointed out that she was working too hard. I urged her to look carefully, find the main current, and let it carry her downstream. I told her about reading water. Let the river pull you to the best channel. Look hard. You'll see it. Sooner or later, you'll just feel it. It's almost like a Taoist kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Am
0: I am I making this
1: up? or is- <laughs> No, I think anything that says go with the flow, you know, don't fight yeah. it, is, I think they're all mutually compatible philosophies for sure. And mm. I love the the way of the valley because the way of the river is in that deepest channel and it doesn't go straight down the valley you know it 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 may it may wind from one side to the next and you just have to be willing to go with that
0: when you were guiding trips down the river um did you have a sense of people being connected or disconnected from nature? I mean, did you ever feel like, oh my God, I can't believe this person doesn't know this. People just, you know, they wanted they wanted something. They wanted to go on the river, but they were just really clueless about it after you had become so experienced.
1: Especially at the beginning of a trip, it took people a good three days. We always said it'll be three days before people are really here, you know? Mm-hmm. And... So they had to rediscover most people had come from a place, say, in their young lives when they would had time outdoors, you know, running around with the other kids in the neighborhood or going camping with their families, or, but, but they had gotten separate from it. And so it was often for people uh, an experience of coming back to it and being back in touch with it and then seeing the stars at night which they hadn't seen for maybe years and so there was this real sense that they were reclaiming a part of themselves that they lost Mm -hmm. so you were kind of an agent of that yeah i mean i was really not that often as aware of that as i am now i guess because there was so much to do all the time. You know, we were cooking, we were rowing, we were getting up early to start the fire. Or, you know, we were just always moving and there, we weren't doing a lot of philosophizing at that time. But, but just the fact that we were physically making it possible for them to get to a place that would have been too hostile without us. yeah, Yeah. We were facilitating it, definitely. One thing you said
0: in reading water was you were talking about having been on the the river for a long time, and how how hard could it be anyway to re- <laughs> to return to civilization? Oh God! I have to admit I have a very mixed feeling about civilization, being that it, you know the word comes from cities, and you know I I see it as something very different from culture. What do you see? In civilization what or what has lasted with you of like things that you know you just don't need or things that you feel that we need more
1: of oh great question well it was always a sense always that we had left behind what was authentic down on the river and we were coming back to a built world that didn't wasn't as it wasn't where we wanted to be. You know, it was always, let's get back down there as soon as we can. So, um, I think what I've retained from that is that, I mean, I'm not very materialistically inclined. I've never been very motivated to acquire. And I I think that, the, you know, I was raised that way also, but the river made it... Uh, the river underscored that. It was like, your life is so full without crap in it. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> it's like... That should be on like a a pillow, one of those needlepoint pillows, although that would be crap too. <laughs> exactly. The exactly. world is so full without crap in it. I'm sorry
1: to interrupt, but I just love that. <laughs> no, that's true. And, and so I remember the last trip I did in Grand Canyon was one that I, I had waited for 10 years for the permit for. Mm -hmm. It was a private trip. I took my family, went with friends. We were all retired river guides. And I remember coming back to this town where I live and everyone's in their cars. And here we had been on the river, uh, mobilizing ourselves just through people power, you know, and river power and wind power and whatever we were, whatever we were doing was not, it, uh, it didn't require a machine to do it, and so to see everybody driving around these little parking lots in these really big machines, it just struck me as so alien. Mm-hmm. It was like watching a science fiction movie. you know, I have that feeling pretty much every day, you know that that we are so separate from what is important on a on a daily basis and And when people can return to it in even a small way, say, sitting under a tree in their backyard, or there's like this picture of you sitting in the pool. (laughs) I mean, that is just, that's the essence of, and so healing, so. It it is. It's just, I
0: don't know. It's just, for me, no human has ever been able to meet that standard. Um, And I'm sure I don't either. Um, But yeah, just the connection, and to, and then when you know that you're made of the same stuff mm-hmm. as something that you might see. Oh, there's a rock. You know, I was talking to this woman. I interviewed this woman not long ago who is a, a, a stone mason. She does these fantastic stone creations, and we were talking about the idea of rock being a process. Um, mm-hmm. And not necessarily a solid thing. Like in in Chinese philosophy, they consider it a process, mm. and That's it so is cool. mm-hmm. on on a much slower scale than we operate on. So, then for you to be able to be in river canyons where you have such scale,
1: yeah, it's. It, I I last week I was visiting a friend up in further northern California, and we took a day trip on the Trinity, just, just paddled little boats, and I kept looking back at her, and she'd be back a couple of rapids, or, I mean, we always kept in sight, but we were sometimes close, sometimes not as close, and she was so small, you know, the boat was really little compared to how deep the canyon was, and how Tall, the trees were in the forest, you know, there's a lot of redwoods up there. Mm-hmm. And, and so the sense, I mean, I never really used that line that I heard the passengers use a lot, you know, that I feel so insignificant. Mm-hmm. You know, but it does put you in perspective, you know, with to, to go outside and, and realize you're not the center of the universe, even though mm-hmm. you're experiencing yourself that way. What's next?
0: You say you're working on the prequel of the book that takes
1: place in Canada about yes. a
0: murder, a water murder.
1: Yes, a water murder. I have a lot of work to do to finish the prequel. I'm also, I'm just now writing a proposal for a book about the women who trained on the Stanislaus River in California about the same time I did. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to do a book that that shows the portraits of those women back then when we were basically just kids, you know, barely out of our teens, I think. And maybe we – well, I was 17 when I started guiding, so I guess most of them were probably also 18-ish. And And so I want to talk to at least a dozen of these women and ask what it was like to learn how to do this – Amazing job on this river that then was lost, and how they look back on the river now, that same river, and then how the river in general, you know, the river with a capital R as our sort of god, you know, how has that stayed in their life?
0: Is this the same river where you saw the dam uh, go up? And, And which dam was that?
1: Yeah, New Maloney's Dam. And So New Maloney's is a great example of what not to do, especially now. I I write about this. I've written several articles on it for various journals that the the dams that we put up now or the water storage that we – Put up now it can't be the same kind of water storage that we've used in the past not with the climate scenarios that we're looking at because they're just there it's just not an efficient way to store water in a hot evaporative environment so we've got to be thinking of other ways to store our, our water i think that i mean the union of concerned scientists says underground storage is the best and does that surprise us when that's what nature does? You know that's <laughs> we <with> groundwater water <laughs> yeah, so.
0: But you know, I was reading something the other day, and I hadn't known this, talking about evaporative mm-hmm. uh, problems with reservoirs and such that there's also a carbon dioxide issue with that. Hmm. that reservoirs, uh, the evaporation of reservoirs um, uh, causes greater carbon dioxide emissions than, say, another body of water would that was moving or smaller or whatever.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, I had no idea, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like, whatever
0: we do, we're screwed.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. It's it's like this friend of mine who, we had these science marches out here. I, you guys probably had them too. In, yep. Um, one of my friends was marching with data that she had. She's a data scientist. And she showed me these graphs that were made with real data from the San Francisco Bay Area. And it showed these these the CO2 curve going exponentially up in one of the graphs. And then the temperatures in the Bay Area going exponentially up in a parallel curve on another. And she looked at me and she said, we are so screwed. <laughs>
0: I actually read about a peer-reviewed article that was about climate, and it was in some, you know, scientific journal, and it was called, Are We Really Fucked? (laughs) 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 That was the title of the paper. It's like that someone had just had enough, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So
0: in that vein... If you had a big wish that mm. you could that some someone could grant you that the fluvial gods could grant you about mm. water what do you have any idea what it would be
1: Yeah, I think I would you know how we talk about being carbon neutral mm-hmm. and how it it is really within each of our personal powers to become carbon neutral in this life mm-hmm I would say, let's all become water neutral too. Let's not take more than we replenish in some way. Now, I don't, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think that if we're going to be on a planet and we expect it to be here for millennia, for the people that we want to live beyond our lifetimes, then we would figure out a way not to deplete. So, I mean, when there were fewer of us and there were... Indigenous tribes living very close to the earth and in spiritual and ecological harmony. They did it. There are so many more of us now that we've got to apply this big brain we say we have to the problem of being carbon neutral, water neutral, energy neutral to neutralize our impact mm-hmm. here. So that's my wish. Okay. I like it. So, <laughs> All right.
0: yeah, I think I think we should grant your wish. That would thank be good. Thank
1: you. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking me that question and allowing me to <laughs> think of an answer that wow. It's it's definitely worth working toward. Yeah.
0: People need to know more about where their water comes from. I mean, just the fact that we ship so much uh so much produce that's grown here to other countries. It's like we're sending the water away. That's
1: exactly you know? what it is. It is Summer Lake, Oregon. It's it's in this agricultural community that, and this valley that is on the edge of the Great Basin. There's not a lot of water, water there. They do grow alfalfa, which mm. for many, many years worked for them because they were selling it locally. And as you say, if you're watering that alfalfa and the local cows are eating it. You're keeping the water in the watershed, but when you're shipping it to China, you're shipping our water to China.
0: Right. Or if you're shipping the the meat to China,
1: same thing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There and, it goes. And there's no way China can repay us the water. So yeah, no, it definitely disrupts the local water cycle. It's, mm-hmm. You're you're absolutely right. Well, we have a lot of
0: we have a lot of work to do, but in the meantime, let's hope that stories can do some of their magic to impress upon people yes uh, what that work is and what it looks like anyway thank you so much becca
1: well thank you maria i really have enjoyed talking to you i've really enjoyed talking to you too
0: thanks to becca lawton and thank you for listening by the way a correction when i said reservoirs release co2 i meant methane which is even worse. So, hey, listen, you can subscribe to the Big Chew Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and through our website at www.meetyourmyth.com. Thanks, and bye for now.